0: Next, on the Agony Column podcast, Chuck Polinick sort of appreciates the finer things in life. You're just
1: going to drive the hell out of it and destroy it. But he doesn't let them go to his head. It's just really appealing to have the experience of these things, but then show that you are not its bitch.
0: Show them who's in charge. Next, on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews and book commentary 5 days a week at trashotron.com/agony.
1: From the field notes of Green Taylor Sims. In Africa, people don't believe in the tooth fairy. Instead they have the tooth mouse. In Spain, Ratoncito Pérez. In France, Le Bon Petit Soiris, a tiny magical rodent that steals teeth and replaces them with spare change. In some cultures, the lost tooth must be hidden in a snake or rat burrow to prevent a witch from finding and using the tooth. In other cultures, children throw the tooth into a roaring fire then later dig for coins in the cold ashes. By believing in Santa Claus then the Easter Bunny, then the Tooth Fairy. Rant Casey was recognizing that these myths are more than pretty stories and traditions to delight children or to modify behavior. Each of those three traditions asks a child to believe in the impossible in exchange for a reward. These are stepped-up tests to build a child's faith and imagination. The first test is to believe in a magical person, Santa Claus, with toys as the reward. The second test is to trust in a magical animal, the Easter bunny, with candy as the reward. The last test is the most difficult, with the most abstract reward. To believe, trust in a flying fairy, the tooth fairy, that will leave money. From a man to an animal to a fairy, from toys to candy to money, thus, interestingly enough, transferring the magic of faith and trust from sparkling fairydom to clumsy, tarnished coins, from gossamer wings to nickels, dimes, and quarters. In this way, a child is stepped up to greater feats of imagination and faith as he or she matures, beginning with Santa in infancy and ending with the tooth fairy as the child acquires adult teeth or, plainly put, beginning with all the possibility of childhood and ending with an absolute trust in the national currency. Chuck Palahniuk is the best-selling author of Lullaby, Diary,
0: and Haunted, His novel Fight Club was made into a film by director David Fincher. He's the author of nonfiction works that include Fugitives and Refugees, A Portrait of Portland, and Stranger Than Fiction. His new novel is Rant, an oral history of Buster Casey. Thank you for joining me, Chuck. Once again, Rick, thank you for having me. Let's talk about this oral history form. As a a Authentic, non-fictional form is where it was first developed. And we have some interesting examples. George Plimpton's Capote. And the one that I found really fascinating was Lexicon Devil, the Life, short life and fast times of Darby crash of the germs. I was a germs fan back in the day. Wow. I actually
1: had what we do is secret. We used to blast that in our dorm room. <laughs> then you had one of the very few copies of that in any form whatsoever. Could you describe
0: what the, an oral history is and what about it attracted to you as a fictional form?
1: An oral history is typically a series of interviews done with many, many people who know about a topic or about a person that's being portrayed. And then these interviews are, are edited, they're cut together, uh, either chronologically or topically, uh, so that you get a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different versions of what the truth actually was about Truman Capote or Edith Sedgwick. That was another great book, Edie, by Gene Stein, or Darby Crash. There's no attempt to rectify the
0: contradictions in this form, is there? We just let everybody tell their story, and even if it doesn't make sense or exactly or add up, it just sits there.
1: Right, because the stories can sort of contradict each other a little bit, and there's that wonderful energy or that wonderful sort of contrast uh, when two 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 sources have a slightly different take on what actually happened. So what made you want to write a fictional oral history? Boy, there's three main reasons. And the first one is that it is such an incredibly readable form because you're reading such small little nuggets of fact or nuggets of plot. And it is very much like eating potato chips. You find yourself eating far, far more than you ever thought you would in one sitting. And second, a nonfiction form allows you to tell a really incredible story. And the more incredible a story is, the more you need this nonfiction form. The best examples are uh, Citizen Kane, told with newsreels and journalists. It's a very melodramatic story. So you tell it in this nonfiction journalistic form, and it becomes very plausible. Orson Welles telling the... uh, War of the World story with radio broadcasts, same thing. Incredibly over-the-top silly story about Martians, but if you tell it in a non-fiction form, it has a credibility and a gravity that's, uh, that's incredible. Blair Witch Project. Again, a kind of over-the-top silly story, but if you tell it as recovered archival documentary footage, it has of believability. Uh, Fargo by the Cohn brothers. Again, another crazy story, very much like Raising Arizona, but by opening that movie with a single card that said the events you were about to see were based on actual events that occurred to real people and were telling this story in order to honor the dead, then suddenly you, you really imbue that story with a seriousness And so, that's the second reason. A nonfiction form lets you tell a really incredible story. And the third reason is that the oral history form allows you to cut story together very much like a film editor would cut film. You can really splice things, chop them up, and put them together so that the oddest things are juxtaposed, and, uh, and you get those instant contrasts. And you can really move rapidly, either topically or chronologically, without any kind of setup or transitional phrasing. You don't have to have these ongoing, boring, establishing shots for every scene. You can just instantly cut from one detail to the next, from one moment to the next.
0: It it struck me as I read this that this is really another extension of your interest in minimalism because, this, as you say, it, you strip out everything except for the pure nuggets uh, of
1: information, really. Right, exactly. It's like getting chocolate chip cookies with nothing but chocolate chips and nuts. You don't have to eat the rest of the Lucky Charms. You can eat just the little marshmallow bits. It's just the parts you want. One thing
0: that I really enjoyed about this book is, as a reader, these kind of books are are re- really rewarding, especially almost like for people who read obsessively. This book is just an absolute, as you say, it's pure dessert because there's, there's so much fun putting it together. It's a very different reading experience from a novel. Tell us a little bit about how you approach that as opposed to a novel.
1: Well, that's kind of the fun part. You really have to relax and Allow the reader to develop the causal relationships between things. Uh, it's kind of a dirty trick. You you put a an apple next to an egg on a table, and you bring someone in and you say, "What does that mean?" And they assume that it means something. So they will invent their own meaning for this little this little uh, you know still life that you're showing them. And so, in a way, with rant. It's like being a lawyer and putting out all these pieces of evidence, the bloody knife next to the ski mask next to the crime scene photo, and letting the reader develop their own sort of causal truth about how these things are related.
0: Technically, this is just an incredibly burnished novel. It's finely polished within an inch of its life.
1: How did you write this? Did you write it in the order that we read it? No, not at all, because that's, that's kind of one of the joys is, is that you don't have to approach material chronologically. You acknowledge the nature of every story is that it is told after the fact, and so everything that you're writing about has been completed, and so you have the ability to be in the moment, in the childhood moment of this of this person's life, but also comment using adult friends that really didn't know the person until the person was 21 or 22 years old. So you had this ongoing ability to, to jump around in time, to comment on the same moments or the same aspects of the life.
0: Tell us a little bit about the man whose life we're
1: celebrating here, Rant. Really, Rant, Casey, is a, just an updated American archetype. Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer or Thoreau. This sort of half human, but sort of half animal person who lives a sort of almost animal awareness in that he is always really present and aware of what he's doing at any moment. He's not interpreting the present through the past, or he's not interpreting the present in anticipation of the future. Whatever he is doing, wherever he is at, that's really all that he's aware of. And so I wanted to present that that really present kind of slow-seeming, but also just really immediately physical kind of American archetype. A, a deeply intuitive character. Intuitive, but but it's an intuition not based on knowledge as much as based on a really Deep awareness of what he's present to at the moment, what he's tasting, what he's smelling, what is happening at that moment. It's interesting that you met, mentioned Huckleberry Finn and, and Tom Sawyer.
0: I, I just had talked to a gentleman who'd written a book called Finn. So I, I had, which was the fictional life of Huck Finn's father. It's dark and horrific, and, and I'm wondering what you think. Why we're going back to Twain and looking at Twain as a source of darkness when these books are generally kind of considered light and, and fun?
1: Well, in a way, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer were both really sort of innocent vehicles by which the reader could explore much, much darker issues like slavery, like the industrialization of America through this so the sort of, through this very innocent perspective, a child an uneducated child, just this very innocence. And I think that's what's really, really appealing about the archetype.
0: And, and you and also enjoy the, the mimetic qualities of Twain, too. You, you employ that. That's the basis of the book. I'm not even sure what you said. <laughs> mimetic, in that you, you sample, essentially, all these people's voices. Uh, one of, Twain is really known for, for writing in the exact voices that his character spoke
1: in. Dialect, yeah. Dialect, yes. And you, you do that as well, don't you? I do it a little bit in this book. You know, uh, writing dialect have been, has been out of fashion for so long, and except for Irving Welsh and Train Spotting and some of his work with Scottish dialect. You know, dialect has really fallen out of favor, and I didn't want to overwhelm people with a lot of it, so I, I just do as much as I have to. Tell us a little bit
0: about some of the other techniques. One thing that, that I felt about this book was that we kind of live now in the, the age of the loop. Everybody knows about looping techniques, how you loop sounds and you loop video, and, and this is a, a very much a, a literary looping novel, isn't it?
1: It is, it is really, somebody compared it to a, a Mobius strip where there really is no beginning and there is no end, that the two of them sort of feed into each other. And that's a good description, because in order to explain the plot to my workshop, I I needed a whiteboard, and I needed five different colors of pens to explain the whole time travel philosophy and how it would work in this plot. You do
0: do some time travel uh, philosophy and actual time traveling in this book. And that's a really interesting change for you. You, When I first talked to you, you, you told me you were really interested in writing horror, and you have. And now you're still writing horror, although I kind of consider it's more horror of discomfort or discomforting. It's, it, this book just makes you
1: squirm all the way through all the things that, that Rand tells you. The You know, there's in all of my books, there's always going to be an element of of the physical, of the visceral. So that the reader is engaged on that gut level, in addition to cognitive and emotional. Just because there are so few books that seem to really do that. Um, So that will always be in my books. But really, since 9-11, you cannot stand on a soapbox and beat a pot with a spoon and expect anybody to pay attention. So I wanted to do three books that were sort of horror, but also commenting. And now I want to do three books that are, in this sort of way, science fiction, but also commenting.
0: Were there any science fiction writers specifically who
1: inspired you? You know, I will always sort of fall back on on Ray Bradbury and also... Mm, brain cramp. Do androids dream of electric sheep? That would be Philip K. Dick. And, Philip K. Dick, of course.
0: And yeah. I was thinking of uh, it, this one thing that this book really reminded me of is one of Philip K. Dick's most famous novels, Time Out of Joint. Which I have not read. You have not read? No. I highly recommend it okay. because this novel is very reminiscent of it. Time is definitely out of joint in this novel, isn't it? Okay, yes, yes, very much. Tell us a little bit about, you, you have a lot of fun with with dilating time and, and playing with time. What got you interested in, in time as, as a plot point?
1: You know, really, I started by collecting stories about people's car accidents. And for at least two years, I would talk to everybody I, I came in contact with. Have you been in a car accident? What was it like? And I collected all of these anecdotes. And the universal characteristic was that these people could tell me millisecond by millisecond what happened. And they remembered these accidents in a, like a short film in slow, slow, slow motion when they couldn't tell me what they had for breakfast that morning or what shirt they wore the day before. And so 99% of our lives, we forget them in the next moment but the car accident moments of our lives stay with us for so long. And I started thinking, what about a group of people that were trying to generate more and more of these really profound lasting moments in their lives so that they would have more stronger memories? And that's really how the book got started. And sort of time grew out of that with the idea, the religious idea of liminal time, which is that moment in Catholic Mass and in almost all religious ceremonies when you try to step out of temporal time.
0: This comes from uh, Victor Turner's uh, essay on uh, Communitas. Could, could you explain that, that concept? That's a really fascinating concept.
1: Victor Turner wrote about uh, something uh, that I'm going to call, that he called liminal and limnoid experiences. And everything that I write is depicting a different limnoid experience, which is typically an event that people step out of their ordinary lives to participate in, like Burning Man or fight clubs. And during these events, which are short-lived, people give up their social status and they come together as equals. And they come together in a general feeling of affection for each other as participants in this short-lived society. And that's what communitas is, is this general affection for each other. And it's in these short-lived sort of experiments that people develop new ways of presenting themselves, new identities, and also develop new structures, new societies, ways of being with each other. And so, you know, really everything I've ever written was about these short-lived, limnoid subcultures. Church and these kind of limnoid experiences always involve blood. You know, and when you think about it, you know, every Sunday I went to church and and was told that I was drinking blood out of a cup. And, uh, and I watched it happen. So go figure. We're all vampires when you come down to it and there's something really going on there and i couldn't i couldn't even unpack what that was
0: as i read this book we'd find scenes that seem pretty much familiarly like the present but all of a sudden like wedged into the present there's some technology that seems very futuristic the the boosting technology then we'll be in a place that seems a little more like the future, but we'll find something that seems very much like the present. And you have these moments, uh, I called it piff and fip, present in the future and future in the present. And and it happens a lot. Tell me a little bit about inserting these splinters of time into one another.
1: You know, it's a way of starting with what I think of as a cultural precedent. You cannot create a world that's entirely new because the reader would have no idea of of identifying, of placing themselves in this world. So you start with what the reader already knows, what the reader's familiar with. And you get them grounded, you get them through the door and comfortable with that. And then you gradually begin to interject different things, new things. And you mix them in gradually enough, as commonplace enough that they don't seem freakish. Like you're, you're purposefully saying, look at this over here. You are including these things as everyday sort of given aspects of life. And the reader will go along because the reader's already accepted these things, which the reader already knows. And you can get them gradually farther and farther away from the world they know. One thing about writing science fiction
0: in the way that you do is that our world already seems, we already live in a bad science fiction novel. We're, we're already in a dystopia at this point. So it's pretty easy to go to, to a, a little more science fiction and, and a lot more dystopian. And tell us a little bit about how this novel comments on our current science fiction dystopia.
1: Boy, it seems like very, very soon. Just This is just one very small aspect. Very, very soon we're going to be seeing implanted technology. You know, 50 years ago, nobody would have had their noses pierced or would have had subcutaneous uh, horns put on their head or would have had all of the, the sort of piercing objects embedded in their skin that we now take as just a very commonplace fashion aesthetic choice. And at the same time, technology has been getting smaller and smaller and more and more important to us as individuals. And so it just seems like we're very close to the junction of aesthetics for putting small metal things through any part of your body and keeping them there and not having anyone question them and technology getting to the size that it could be embedded in you. And you could have a swipe card, a breeze card in your hand, or you could have a, an iPod embedded in the back of your neck. So just that one aspect seems like something that's just so ready to happen. The boosting technology that you
0: create, you have this, uh, explain that a little bit to us because you have this really great idea of filtering one experience through another and it really reminds me of, of Photoshop, <laughs> in the
1: omnipresence of Photoshop in our culture and, and how important it's become. The concept of, of uh, boosting technology or boosting you know, lessons or entertainment is that someone will live an experience. They're called the primary witness. They'll live, say, a, a scenic train trip, and all of their sensory input, uh, whatever they smell, whatever they see or hear or taste or feel, is downloaded and recorded in such a way that someone else can live that exact same experience, and that these experiences are, are now commercially sold, that you can you can have Julia Roberts' experience on a beautiful island for a weekend. So, of course, these things become sort of, you know, they have to be remixed. So you take the primary experience of, say, Julia Roberts, and you have it experienced by, say, Juliette Lewis, and you record Juliette Lewis's experience of Julia Roberts' weekend in Bimini. And so suddenly you have a slightly different version of the experience. And so people will, they'll dampen or heighten the effects of the experience by screening them and re-recording them through either babies or animals or people who are high or people who are mentally damaged. And so you create this sort of, this way of heightening and mixing. You really are
0: interested in in remixing reality in, in this book as
1: in much the way that people remix music. And also ex- and acknowledging that the reality that you live is not the reality that I live. And and I'm always fascinated, fascinated when someone points at a car and says, look at that blue car. And I can't find it because all I see is a green car. And we really do live in this incredibly fractured reality. Um, and this is a, a metaphor that allows me to sort of play with that.
0: One thing that, that about your fiction that I find a, a technique that you use that make that's really fun to makes it fun to read is I think you write sometimes kind of wish fulfillment thing, fiction, where, um, for example, we have a Rant finds these coins, and, and whenever he he starts he figures out a way to get coins that are very valuable that have been stored in in barns and such and as you read these kind of descriptions of him finding these coins and he finds he'll find a a coin that's worth 8 million dollars and sell it for 15,000 you figure no matter who's in, where you are in that transaction you've just become fabulously wealthy and you also do this with cars, too. You'll, you'll show us, take us inside these really wealthy cars, and they're really luxurious, but they're just going to be annihilated. <laughs> they're just going to be wasted and tossed away. And, and this, you provide us with this kind of vicarious super wealth. And I'm wondering what led you to do that?
1: It's, uh, it's just really appealing to have the experience of these things, but also not have the burden of them, to be able to you know, destroy this beautiful thing, to enjoy it for a short period of time, but then show that you are not its bitch. You are not the slave of this beautiful thing. You will not have to store it and insure it and wax it, that you're just going to drive the hell out of it and destroy it. You're going to enjoy it, but you are not going to be possessed by it. And the same with the money that they come across they're going to use these things, but they are not going to be enslaved by them. This is also deeply and very much
0: a novel about fathers and sons. And it brings to life a Wordsworth quote. The child is the father of the man. And it makes that literally true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shh, don't give too much away. <laughs> but, you know, you you will know, just like me, that after a certain age, every time you look in that bathroom mirror, you are, in a way, kind of becoming your worst enemy. That is your dad. And you find yourself saying things that your dad said, and you're not really happy about it. So, you know, how do you resolve that? Uh, I get in trouble for acting that way, actually. You know, and so all of the books are, have some personal issue at the core, and that is really something of mine. Now that I'm very heavily middle-aged is acknowledging that, yeah, to a big extent, I am becoming everything that I did not like about my dad. It's the old apple, don't fall too far from the tree. And also having to sort of forgive the tree because now you find yourself being very much like the tree. You have a vision of humans
0: as being a technology. Rant is like a, a, a biochemical processing plant with his ability to smell and taste and... and, and Input uh take people's sense and, and understand what they've been doing their history.
1: Tell tell us a little bit about that. That is uh, you know, Rant's ability to ha <laughs> to enjoy cunnilingus with his girlfriend and just through the sensory experience, not through any language whatsoever, know that that she got fired that day. There's something about her body chemistry that is so specifically different that day that he can guess that she lost her job. And and that is a way of sort of presenting him as this kind of animal person who is able to understand not just language for information, but is able to glean information from every sense, not just through words.
0: And you have a lot of fun with, with senses that don't often get a lot of play in this book. Uh, How much do you yourself pursue these senses
1: in order to be able to write about them so well? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, Smells. I am always trying to document and record smells because there are so few books that really use smell, and yet smell is so evocative of, uh, of memory and experience. And also, there was a really, there was a landmark UCLA study from 1967 that showed that of all of the communication that occurs between people, um, 67% of it um, is gesture and posture. And like another 18% or 25% is tone of voice and volume of voice. And of all the communication between people, only 7% is the actual words that they say. And so it's always my goal in books to convey information through everything but dialogue. Dialogue is my last resort for information.
0: You're really interested in information in a a sense that I think you've taken one of the classic tools of the science fiction writer. is called the info dump. This is where you bring the story to a grinding halt and say, "Okay, here's this great new technology. Here's how it works. Do 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 do. do. done." And then you go, your characters go march around and use that technology. You basically get rid of all the characters and <laughs> marching around and just stick with the with the information. Tell us a little bit about like turning information in in its purest form in, into an art form. Well,
1: uh, number one it is a really great way to pace the action and to interject a contrasting sort of texture of information, a different texture of narrative. Because you can have that recording angel narrative where Susan walked into the room and looked around concerned. Would Bob be home in time for dinner? You know, you can have that moment-to-moment narrative. But it gets boring, so you need to break it occasionally and move into a sort of big-voice narrative where you comment, What is it about husbands? Why aren't they ever home for dinner? I mean, my father was never home. Susan's father, you know, big voice, little voice. But then there's also that sort of nonfiction voice where you can lapse into describing how a lobster's heart works. And you have the different texture of information. You establish authority because, darn, you sound really smart. You can use words that you couldn't normally use in a narrative, so you get to throw in these wonderful poetic medical or science words. There's just so many reasons for having these sort of short-lived poetic lapses into dense, interesting information. You really play
0: off the American archetype of the tall tale. Brandt is really like a, a figure from, you know, Paul Bunyan or something. Uh, and, and you yourself actually are something of a tall tale, in in that I, we we hear, um, a, a, as uh, as writers go, you're you're something more of a celebrity, than, and you know we, we'll hear about uh, the readings where your where your listeners pass out, and I'm wondering how much of your the tall tale feel in your narrative here. Is does any of that bubble up out of your own experiences as actually being a tall tale?
1: Uh, no, because... Sorry. <laughs> the uh, the tall tale has to occur in how you occur for other people. Because Rant Casey is or is not whatever he was. But he has become a projection or he has become a symbol for the people who, do, who did know him. And in a way, they've projected all of that greatness onto him for whatever reason. He's a symbol of their lost youth, or he's a symbol of how they wish they were. Um, You know, he has all these sort of desires that are projected on him. And I'm, I'm kind of enjoying the same thing, is that, you know, I'm a little bit of a blank canvas. And I think a lot of people project whatever they would like to see on that. In this novel,
0: we have a lot of – some, some interest in an old friend of ours, uh, Sigmund Freud. Long ago, Dr. Freud was presented to us as a scientist and given credit with creating the science of psychoanalysis, which was somewhat obsoleted in the 70s and 80s. And he's kind of really backgrounded. And now he's being kind of reborn a- as an artist – in As a writer, a, a guy who, whether or not he was writing something that was factually true or whether his scientific observations held any water, he was getting at some other truth maybe that was equally as important and as true as you know, whether or not a cup of water weighs this many ounces. To, I'm wondering, did you look
1: at Freud? Because there's certainly a Freudian aspect to this novel. As there are to all of my novels. I, but No, really, I really haven't studied Freud very much, but I, I have read a lot of Jung, and so much of Jung is about finding narratives that express something that's inexpressible, and finding some story that isn't necessarily the truth, but it at least it's a way of expressing and depicting this aspect of ourselves that otherwise is unexpressed. And, and
0: again, we have you have a lot of fun with family dynamics in this novel. Yeah, at at one point, you you have a great line that that your mom and dad look like a god too retarded to fashion anything better than you. <laughs> and tell us a little bit about some of the family
1: dynamics that that informed this novel. The uh, I really wanted to touch on the way that. Parents express themselves through their kids, and one of the dynamics was uh, that the mother would take the sort of ordinary clothing of her son, rant, and that she would uh, decorate it. She would embroider it, or she would tie-dye it. She would sew things on it, so that you know it would be pretty. So that she felt really expressed. She thought that they, these things were really masterpieces, but he could never wear them to school after that. And it wasn't just that he would be ridiculed for having these, but that his peers would ridicule his mother for the work that she had done. That this very intimate expression of her artistic desire would be publicly, you know, made fun of by his classmates. And so he found himself with a smaller and smaller and smaller wardrobe and hiding the few things that she had not embroidered or done something to. And that's a big part of my childhood. Tell us, uh, it, it interests me too
0: that you managed, In we were talking earlier about your ability to write stuff that makes people uncomfortable. And one of this this points up,
1: Bad art makes people really uncomfortable. It does because it can, it can show the yearning for self-expression. It can show the really desperation to communicate something. But it can also show the lack of skill for being able to execute that thing. It just shows desire and need without showing any kind of expertise or accomplishment. And that can be really, really ick-inducing. It's tragic too, yeah. and, and and it's a power. This is a. There
0: are lots of moments in this book I found very powerfully emotional, even as I was just wringing my hands in discomfort.
1: <laughs> you know, and that's the idea because there, those moments of deep humiliation, stay with you in a really physical way. They make you cringe for for the rest of your life. And cringing is one
0: of it seems to be one of the primary emotions of your novels, and your work.
1: Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, just because they are such strong, strong moments, and a lot of times people will tell me stories. Oh boy, one of my best friends in college, his father was a mining engineer professor in Butte, Montana, and one day it was the Super Bowl, and his father had all his big. Mining peers over, and they were watching the game and they were drinking beer and eating chips. And my friend Franz, who must have been five or six years old, he found one of his sister's baby dolls and he styled its hair into a bouffant and he pinned a brooch to the front of the bouffant and he made the doll really pretty. And he walked into the living room in front of all of his father's peers and he said, Daddy, look how I styled Tina's hair. And his father was just mortified, and his father just bellowed, just really tore Franz a new one. And that moment is so horrible, going from the the really height of pride and accomplishment to being so destroyed by your father that I've never forgotten that story. Franz told me that story 30 years ago, and I will never forget that story. And I think that's one reason why I write these stories is because uh, I can't forget the real versions of them.
0: As a writer, you have a kind of a brand, and that brand would be Fight Club to the most of the public. And you do a great job of updating that brand in this book with Party Crashing. and It's described as Fight Club with cars. Yeah, and it's another limnoid experience. <laughs> <laughs> Chances are I that uh, we'll be hearing people, uh, as this book gets out, we'll be hearing about people doing party crashing.
1: It's already done. I've done it twice in the Bay Area, and I've done it twice in Portland. So, you know, again, so much of what I do is just journalism. Non-fiction reported reporting. Tattletailing, I prefer to call it.
0: <laughs> I'm wondering people will probably get hurt doing this and do you worry about that as a as a writer being responsible for somebody's like having uh, an intimate meeting with the center of their steering wheel at 25
1: miles an hour <laughs> the uh, you know it's kind of the devil in the deep blue sea do you let these things which are unacknowledged by the culture continue in which case people will be hurt or do you acknowledge them kind of you know, give people a cathartic way to laugh them off and let them pass, in which case people may be hurt. You know, it really is a, you know, it's going to be what it is one way or the other. You would like to
0: write about kind of uh, secret societies and and
1: conspiracies and,
0: and things kind of uh, behind reality, concealed beside reality. Why does that interest you?
1: Because Again, it's a it's a sort of a liminal culture or a limnoid culture outside of the main culture. And because I really don't have a clue to be with people, everybody knows everybody except for me. And I think we all kind of feel that way. And we're always looking for clues from each other. And we're always studying how people are together so that we can interact with other people more effectively. And so by presenting these sort of blueprints or depicting these limnoid cultures, you are presenting people with the sort of blueprint or plan for being with each other, structure for being with each other, that we are naturally always looking for, because none of us really know how to be with each other.
0: This book begins with a a spiel by a car salesman that I really love, and, and Tell us a little bit about that. Did you actually talk to a car salesman about this
1: and, and describe what that is? I went to a, uh, a six-day seminar on how to sell cars, primarily used cars, to people and sat in this, this, in this room with 18 other used car salesmen and learned how to sell things to people who didn't have money and didn't need these things just really how to trick people into buying very expensive things. And it was absolutely fascinating because because it all stems from studying how humans interact and studying language especially so that you can really take advantage of how people hear you and also how they speak. So you can really study what they say and you can really manipulate them. And it was one of the greatest research things I've ever done. Did the, these people know who you were or, or no. why you were there? They had
0: no idea who I was. Wow. All of your books, and this one as well, are are often quite funny. This book made me laugh out loud a lot. Oh, thank you. And I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about your kind of humor. And also, thank you for using the word friggin'. I only oh. used it once, but oh. I was really pleased to find that word, one of my favorite words. Oh friggin', it's a
1: it's a word you can say on the radio. It's a word you can say on the radio. <laughs> oh, my humor tends to be uh, socially inappropriate. Inappropriate response humor. It tends to be horrible things happening, but the people to whom they are happening react to them without buying into the drama. They typically really underreact or they don't react at all to these awful things and uh, an example of this in a different book is a is a small press book that I'm I'm giving away on tour as a gift it's called obscene interiors and the author has done this great thing where he has taken photos from internet sex ads and i think they're all men but they're all naked men in these incredibly obscene positions doing these really lurid things with their naked bodies. And what he did was he outlined them and he shaded the actual figure in gray. So you can just see the outline of what this thing is doing and it's something really horrible. And then he comments on how they've decorated their home or their apartment. And so it's basically an interior decorating book about what not to do, and it ignores this awful thing in the foreground while commenting on the otherwise sort of superfluous but really funny sort of tawdry things in the background. And so, again, the book is called Obscene Interiors, but what I do is sort of the same thing, is kind of overlook the immediate horror and underreact to it. And there's always humor in that because there's freedom in that. It's, it, it's, it's giving us the freedom not to have to engage in the drama of every upset, that, that we have a freedom to engage or not to engage. I was thrilled
0: to find the many disease themes in this book. Uh, I love disease. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love disease? Uh, I, I'm, have, do you recall an old website called Skin Disease Weekly? No. Oh, you would have loved
1: it. Oh. It was
0: very disturbing, and usually would. It was a great diet aid. You could look at that before lunch, and you would not be hungry even till
1: dinner. That's what my friends say about me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, one part I I'm wondering. Did you read a book called Man and Microbes? No. Because uh, when you talk about the way disease affects human history, mm. this is is. is this book, that's the theme of this book, is how disease has completely essentially controlled human history. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you write about that theme in info dumps in here, and then how it works out in the plot, how you use that as a plot point.
1: Basically, I had to establish how rabies could become a very, very communicable disease and become its own pandemic. And so to establish that as a reality, I just went back in history. And uh, and documented how many people believe that that syphilis was originally the African skin disease yaws, which occurs uh, from skin to skin contact. But once it immigrated to Europe, where people wore clothing and it was much less likely that people would, you know, rub bare legs or bare arms, um, it became a disease primarily transmitted through kissing. Because it was still as highly contagious as yaws. But at the time, the common greeting, instead of handshaking, was for people to kiss each other on or near the mouth. And that's what led to the, the enormous explosion of, and now I'm, I can't remember if it was syphilis or gonorrhea. Syphilis. Syphilis. But it also led to people shaking hands. It changed people's behavior. And it was only after people started shaking hands instead of kissing that eventually syphilis became a venereal disease transmitted through sex. And so it's just, you cannot comprehend the enormous numbers of governments and individuals who were destroyed or affected by infection with syphilis. And uh, that was just one of the very small medical things.
0: Uh, rabies is an interesting choice, that uh- there's actually another book. I wonder, did you read a book by David Morrell called Totem? It was a, it was a the gentleman who wrote First Blood. A few novels after that, he wrote a nice novel about rabies infecting many of the inhabitants of a small town, kind of yours in a oh, micro, microcosm, most unpleasant. Uh, w- rabies also allows you to turn your rabies victims into something
1: pretty closely resembling classic horror movie zombies. Zombies, which is the Jacques Derrida definition of the unresolved thing. The zombie, it's not human, but it's not an animal. It's not an object. It looks human. It behaves human. Is it dead? Is it alive? It can't be decided. So the zombie carries so much psychic power for us. But also zombies are great because since they're not quite human, you can do whatever you want to a zombie. And... uh and so, yeah, there is this sort of zombie symbol in the latter part of the book. There's a, and they become a,
0: a, a good object for some slapstick uh, experiences.
1: Some really gruesome slapstick experiences, yeah. You always have to be thinking about the movie version. I, I guess. Uh,
0: I'm wondering, can you tell us, uh, you said you're working on three novels... Tell us a little bit about, uh, did you conceive these all at once, these three novels you're working on? Rant is the first, and the second is? The second
1: won't be out for two years, but it's kind of a sequel to Rant, and it's going to follow the, the sort of culture of people called historians who have somehow gone back in time and interfered or preempted their own conception. And so they've placed themselves outside of temporal existence. They're basically become immortal because they exist, but they exist without a beginning. And so therefore, they don't have an end. They exist in, as a Catholic, what I was taught, God existed in without beginning and therefore without ending. And so the next book is about them. But in between is going to be a book out next spring called Snuff. And that's entirely, entirely different. So between the three rant books, there will be two short, funny, dark, scandalous books.
0: Tell us a little bit about Snuff.
1: Snuff. <laughs> ah we, we can guess. Well, there is a a genre of adult movies called World's Largest Gangbang Movies. And it the most famous one is the Annabelle Chong movie. And Annabelle Chong uh was a graduate student, I believe in gender studies at UCLA, and a staunch feminist. And she wanted to make a very sex-positive movie based on the Roman empress Messalina, who was the wife of Claudius, who could basically pick any and all the men she found attractive and engage with them. And so so Annabelle Chong took on as many men as she could tolerate in one film shoot. And that was ultimately 251 sex acts with men. But And it became the top-selling, continues to be the top-selling adult movie of all time. But very quickly, her record was broken. And that record is broken on a regular basis now. So I thought, why not a book about a woman attempting to set such a record, but mostly about the th- three different guys who Meet in the green room of that film shoot, waiting for their, they're their called a set, and the three of them discussing and revealing gradually what brought them there and who they really are, and also the fact that the woman who is the star is at the very middle aged end of her career and that she fully intends to die during the production of this movie. From stress, heart attack, stroke, vaginal embolism, but that her record will stand for all time as the record, and no other movie of this of this type will ever be allowed. And the income stream from this movie will go to an illegitimate child, that is more than likely one of these three men.
0: Wow, well that sounds like fun. <laughs> that is just the tip of the
1: snuff iceberg. I can imagine that. Do you are. It's not going to be an Oprah book, let's say. <laughs> Look, I don't think so. Uh, I, you're, as you're touring, you're reading some stories, aren't you? I'm reading two stories that really don't exist anywhere but tour because I want to give people something really unique that nobody else is going to get. And I'm reading a story called Love Nest, and I'm reading a story called Cold Calling that are both pretty challenging. A challenging how? Well, the first one is got an enormously appalling reveal, but it's got a lot of laughs before that. and the second one the second one is the funniest thing I've ever read. I cannot believe how hard people laugh. It's about a a telemarketing kid, some seventeen year old and through most of the story, he's placing these these cold calls to people and basically. Uh, red states. And they all just assume that he is some kid in India or Pakistan. So they are castigating him with every racist thing that they've assumed about him, when in fact, he's just a white kid in Walla Walla, Washington. So it's basically a white person being tortured with the most racist stuff you can think of. And where that leads, that's really just the very beginning of the story.
0: I can see how that would be challenging. I, I, I'm wondering, do you ever suffer any repercussions of the challenging nature, do the challenging nature of your material? I mean, uh, are, you, are, are there uh, evangelists uh, standing up on screen holding
1: your books and, and sweating? Not yet, but there have been a lot of people filing uh, written complaints at big box bookstores after my events, and I have set records in what are typically some pretty liberal places, uh, dozens and dozens of written complaints uh, at these big shopping mall bookstores. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you at a big shopping mall bookstore this evening. <laughs> no, to this, this evening, please. I'm at uh, Booksmith. Booksmith. In the hate, so there should be some tolerance <laughs> there. I think there should be. We'll look forward to
0: seeing you there. We've been speaking with Chuck Polinick. His new book is Rant. Thank you for joining me, Chuck.
1: Rick, it is always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to
0: Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.